Hello and welcome to the RTE Brainstorm podcast, a home for new ideas and insights on Ireland and the world. It's a unique partnership between RTE and the Irish third level institutions. Now, enjoy the show. Hello. It is such a familiar story. You get sick, your doctor gives you a course of antibiotics, you think all is sorted, but after you take them, you don't get better. So many of us have been there. The miracle pills that we're told will cure our ills aren't always working anymore because bacteria have developed resistance to them. The World Health Organization says that antibiotic resistance has risen to dangerously high levels and it's one of the biggest threats to our health. So how did it come to this? Why are bacteria so good at defending themselves? And how can we fight antibiotic resistance? Well, I'm joined by two researchers who are qualified to calm us all down with reassurances that scientists will actually be able to sort everything out. Isn't that correct? Uh, James Dooley from Ulster University and Sarah Delaney from Maynooth University. You're very welcome to Brainstorm. Um, You're both microbiologists spending your lives in this micro world looking at bacteria. James, you grew up in Monaghan and I wonder when you were a child, was microbiology something that you, sort of a world that you knew about? Absolutely not. Never heard of it. Uh, My world was playing golf and just having fun as normal. Um, I I liked science at school. I could do that. But um, we didn't really go down the biology side of things. I was doing physics and chemistry and could seem to make sense of the equations and things like that. I liked biology, David Attenborough on the radio and all all that sort of stuff. But no, microbiology never really... um, so why did you get into it? Um, I was exposed to it eventually. I did an undergrad degree in Galway and it's quite a very general degree to start with. You do physics, chemistry, math and biology. So it's um, you get exposed to other things that you hadn't seen before. For me, that was biology. And then there was one particular lecturer came in with a steaming mug of coffee and a greasy leather jacket and you know he broke the mould a little bit so uh, this, from the this others. gentleman was was called Pete Smith is this That's who you're talking about yeah. tell me about this lecture because I gather he had a huge impact on you well he certainly uh, turned on some lights that I hadn't uh, encountered before you know he started telling stories about uh, the black death and what that was it's a bacterial infection and it had kind of a big impact on Europe if you take away a third of the population the whole social structure had to change and feudalism died out basically I suppose because of that so you know these small things having big impacts huge impact Uh, Sarah you grew up in Leash. Uh, you said that when you were younger, you were always questioning things. You ended up doing microbiology in NUI Galway about 25, 30 years after you, James. You're now in the middle of a PhD in Maynooth. And I wonder what drew you to this amazing world? Uh, yeah. So when I was a child, I was always questioning things like, why does this happen? And how is this happening? And I suppose it was a perfect opportunity then to go into general science as my degree. And in that, I was much like James exposed to microbiology and something that stood out for me were the experiments that we did in the lab. So one of them was streaking our phones and seeing what grew in Petri dishes. And this was at the time when everyone had button phones. So you had like the full QWERTY keyboard, lots of little nooks and crannies for bacteria and moulds to grow in. So when we swabbed our phones and then saw the next day what had grown 
it was unbelievable. All of these things that we couldn't see that were present all over our phone that were touching hundreds of times a day. And that really got me interested in microbiology. And you wanted to dive into that world. And we're going to talk a bit about your research uh, later. In, in general, you look at the guts of chickens. And I just wonder, what's your lab like? Uh, oh, there's lots of interesting things in our lab in Maynooth. So um, I look at the contents of the guts of chickens. So we've lots of samples from them. There's also projects looking at different manure types. So we could have lots of pig slurry or cow manure and then we have other people looking at wastewater effluent we have people looking at uh, fish samples and there's just a whole mixed bag of things a going lot of on entrails at any going one on time <laughs> and before we we talk about resistance can we just dive briefly into the world of, of bacteria James they've been on the planet for what is it 3.5 billion years they you know our existence is a blip compared to them they've been around a lot they know exactly how to survive don't they absolutely because they're i suppose you survive that long cuz you're adaptable they can adapt quicker than we can we evolve very slowly small mutations as darwin worked out back in the day small mutations can change little things his finches are still finches and they have slightly different beaks but bacteria could change almost totally in a long afternoon uh, they can take up huge amounts of genetic information from their environment and change so so rapidly so i think that's what makes them uh, so successful and it's not likely to change anytime soon. And this is the most extraordinary fact about bacteria, isn't it? That they can, unlike, for example, humans, I mean, I can't reach in and take some of your DNA and, and insert it into me, but with with bacteria, they can just rub up against each other. Different species can rub up against each other and, and steal each other's DNA. Is that correct? Yeah, or I might even say stealing it. I think they're happy to share. And, uh, you know, they're quite happy. They, they've developed ways to, you know, pick up DNA from everywhere and see if it works. That's why it's it's so successful for them. Yeah, there could be a slight element of stealing too, but no, it, it's a case of we're stronger by passing our stuff around. So they're, they're like a kind of army, you know, uh, sort of power in numbers. Yeah, very much so. I think we... It's difficult to appreciate the numbers. You know, we, we think of the stars and the cosmos and they love to throw big numbers at us. We can think of that sort of level and probably more when we look at the numbers of bacteria that we have to encounter. Uh, Sarah, do you have a favourite bacteria? Uh, so I think the bacteria I work with the most in the lab is E. coli. So I'm going to say that that's my favourite. Um, and I, re I really like this because it's such a diverse bacteria. It's one that every human harbours in their gut. It's a natural bacteria. Um, it does good things for us. It helps produce vitamins. It helps with our immune sy system, like fighting off the bad, the bad guys. Um, but it could also be an opportunistic pathogen. So if it gets the opportunity, it can cause infection and that's obviously where our antibiotics come in, that we need to fight it. And as well as that, um, it's just so versatile in the lab for all of our experiments. Um, e. coli can pick up these pieces of DNA, as we mentioned before, so easily, and it just makes them much easier to study. The extraordinary fact 
that I read yesterday was about human cells and that actually when we think of ourselves as human, we're only, some scientists say, 43% human cells. And the rest of us are this, you know, microscopic colonists of, of, of bacteria and fungi and viruses and all the DNA associated with that as well. Can you just describe, James, when it comes to bacteria in our stomachs, for example, you know, what amount of our stomachs are made of bacteria? Yeah, um, this has again been a fairly recent discovery. Uh, we've known about the general idea for you know many decades, but in the last 10 years or so, we're beginning to realise that these guys are not just you know hitchhikers, that they're actually contributors. They are um, good guys, um, and we've managed to document what they're doing. They're primarily in our gut, but we'll find them in our skin, we'll find them um, in our respiratory tract, places like that, most body surfaces, but in, in our gut, that's where the, the major numbers, you know, we have more bacteria in our gut than we do have cells in our bodies, you know, if we want to believe some of those guys who like to count things like that. <laughs> Is it correct to say like a football size amount of bacteria? Oh yeah, that's I think that's reasonable. Extraordinary. And the percentage, if you can answer this, you know, the percentage that are, are good for us and are essential to our, our lives versus mm. the bad. A difficult one to call. Um, or from the top of my head, I'd say 99.9 are the good guys because really the list of, of bad guys is very short compared to the, the numbers of organisms that we know are out there. But Also, a lot of the time what you might have are bacteria which are living away happily, not causing any problems. But then if you take an antibiotic they see an opportunity. So you have gotten rid of a huge population and then they see, oh, this is my time and this is my chance to take over. And an example of this would be Clostridium difficile, which is a major problem in hospitals. And uh, that's literally how it happens. They are living happily away, not affecting anything. And then when they see their chance, they take it. So they are good at uh, taking advantage of an empty space after yeah. antibiotics come in and kill all the other ones. Yes. Yeah. Uh, James, to talk a little bit about antibiotics, I mean, can you give us a brief understanding of what life was like before antibiotics were discovered? You know, uh, I mean, obviously we know that life expectancy has increased by 20 years in the last 50 years. But, you know, just how difficult was it to treat various conditions, and diseases? Incredibly difficult. Um, there were some concoctions out there. But the problem was they were very, very toxic. Things I remember seeing like mercuric chloride. Now, so mercury, we all know mercury is toxic. So the idea was to try and give a dose of mercury that would kill whatever was causing the infection and not kill the, the patient or not irrevocably harm the patient. And those things aren't easy to find. You know, chemicals that we would never use now for human therapy were, were used because there was nothing else. Antibiotics then, because they are specific for bacteria, they do not normally uh, harm us. And therefore that allowed us to target these organisms that are causing infection and leave us essentially unharmed. And it's quite a famous story, but take me to the September morning in 1928 when the scientist Alexander Fleming returned from holidays. He went to his lab to sort of get back to work. And what did he find? Well, as the story goes, then there were some, he was growing some bacteria 
we can do that. And back in the day, he could do that quite well, growing some common bacteria. Uh, and you have these little Petri dishes that you put in at a, a set temperature and the bacteria grow and look like little pinpricks on them. So he came back in to look. But as all microbiologists know nowadays, the, the air is full of fungal spores. We can't see them, of course, they're microbial, but somewhere along the line, some fungal spores must have got into his dish and they can grow uh, under unusual conditions. And especially if you give them a long time, you know, they're, they're a bit slower than bacteria. So normally you've finished growing your bacteria and, and you never even see these guys. But if you go on holidays... The fungi have time to grow. So if you leave a loaf of bread out and you come back, can you see it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every student flat in the country has that after <laughs> a long weekend. Uh, so uh, he came back and yes, there was a fungus growing on his plate and close to the fungus, the bacteria did not like it and far away from the fungus, they were growing as normal. So he just made that simple but very important um, link that the fungus is producing something that the bacteria don't like. Maybe maybe that could be useful for something. Perceptive. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and what he found, of course, was the first yeah. antibiotic. I mean, how quickly, Sarah, did the R word come in, resistance? Uh, less than 10 years. It was very, very quick. And that's just when we started detecting it. It could have been around before then. Uh, no idea. And generally, even now, if we look at a timeline of resistance of when an antibiotic is discovered and when the resistance developed, those two points on the timeline are very, very close together. So very, very quickly, bacteria were, as you were saying, they can you know, react within an afternoon. They were putting up their own defences and saying no to penicillin, yes. as, as the case was with uh, Fleming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In order to understand resistance, can you just describe how uh, antibiotics work? How do they kill bacteria? Well, there are what we call different classes of antibiotic. Uh, we'll look at maybe the first one, penicillin, the one that Fleming discovered. Bacteria all have a, a, a tough cell wall. It's, it's around them and it's a unique substance. We don't have it. Animals don't have it. Plants, you know, they, we don't have this thing uh, at all. And this is absolutely essential to them. Um, and you can think of it like, like a chain in a necklace. As the bacteria are growing, you know, if you want to make your necklace bigger, you have to break a link, add a few new links and stitch it back together again. It's the same with bacteria. As they're growing, some of this wall has to be broken down briefly and then new bits inserted. And the penicillin stops the new bits going in. Therefore, the bacteria wall starts to break down and then they just swell up and burst. And it's very, very effective. And how quickly did other types of antibiotics come on stream then in the in the 60s and 70s? Uh, there was a steady stream. You know, every few years, a new antibiotic, some antibiotics stop bacteria making their own proteins, which is very important. All cells have to make proteins. If you can't do that, you won't grow. Uh, some bacteria, st uh, some drugs were developed or found that stopped them folding up their DNA, which is a, a thing that's unique to bacteria. We have chromosomes and everyone's heard of our, our chromosomes and seen pictures. Bacteria don't do that at all. So they have a unique way of folding up their DNA and therefore these new drugs would stop bacteria and wouldn't affect us. So that went on for about 10, 20 years, new classes of drugs, new classes of antibiotics. And then it stopped maybe in the late 80s. And, we couldn't uh, find any new ones. And have there been any new antibiotics since the late 80s? A f 
a couple of small successes, but no major groups. Uh, we we put our antibiotics into families, for example. Penicillin, there's maybe about 20 different penicillins now, but they're all only subtle variations on a theme. They're not major new differences. And unfortunately now there's very little incentive for pharmaceutical companies to invest into antibiotic discovery and development. So um, if you think about it, when you take an antibiotic, you use it for maybe a course is three days or seven days and that's it. Whereas people with chronic illnesses are taking constant medication and that's what the pharmaceutical companies are pumping all of their investment into. And therefore, it's really important that we safeguard the antibiotics that we currently have. The resistance part of it, James, I mean, we spoke a bit or you described a bit about how bacteria evolve and kind of share and swap DNA and they're able to kind of pilfer off each other, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, and, and presumably resistance is that's the key way in which they convey resistance to each other and then may, mean that antibiotics don't work anymore. Absolutely. Um, in one of the organisms that I work with, resistance is caused by, you can think of it as a pump, and the pump is in the bacteria's, on, on the bacteria's surface, and every time the antibiotic gets inside, the pump pumps it out again. So therefore, the, the antibiotic can never build up inside the bacteria to cause any damage, because the pump is, is very effective. And what, what these bacteria can do then is they can swap the information for this pump, the DNA. And so an organism that has no pump would be killed by the antibiotic, but it gets a piece of DNA that has the pump information on it and it makes a pump. And it's now totally resistant to that. And this isn't just within their own species, is it? No, this can be passed between, well, Sarah's E. coli could pass a pump system onto a thing called Pseudomonas or pick one up from Pseudomonas and Pseudomonas are nasty pathogens when they when they get into the wrong places. Uh, Sarah, talk a little bit about your own work because, you know, it's not just humans taking too many antibiotics that's the issue here when it comes to resistance, is it? I mean, livestock is a huge part of the story. Absolutely. So my research focuses specifically on broiler chickens and these are the ones that enter the food chain. So when you go to the supermarket, these are the ones that you see on your shelf or when you go to a restaurant, this is the chicken that's put in front of you. And what we're seeing is that there's a huge reservoir of antibiotic resistance present and I focus specifically on plasmid-mediated resistance. And this is, as we've mentioned before, those little pieces of DNA that are able to transfer from one species to another. And, and why? I mean, I gather antibiotics began to be used in livestock farming after the Second World War, but why was it used? Why were they used? So this was... See, someone discovered that antibiotics actually make animals grow really big and if you have really big lovely looking animals you're going to be able to produce more get them onto the shelves more people are going to buy them and this was seen as a really effective way of upping the production of these animals. And how quickly was it discovered that resistance in animals could transfer to humans? Uh, so this is something that people are still looking into today, how did this transfer happen? And what we can see is that bacteria, we can 
um, we can follow the strain. So we can use techniques where we see it in animals and then we find the same strain in humans. So an example of this would be um, in the Netherlands, there was a six-month-old girl that went in for a surgery unrelated to any infectious disease, but they did swabs to check for MRSA before she went, underwent her surgery and they found she was colonised with it and they couldn't figure out where this had come from. She had no foreign travel. Her family hadn't travelled anywhere. Um, and when they uh, cultured from her family, they found that her parents were also carrying MRSA. And with a little bit more discovery, uh, they realised that their parents were pig farmers and that it was actually a pig that was colonised with the MRSA and that it must have passed from animal to human. So it jumped from the pigs into... The farm workers, their parents, into the yeah. into the young daughter. Yes, and we're seeing that um, this can happen on numerous different different types of animals and anyone who's in contact with them. Sarah, how concerned should we be? I mean, I know you're in the middle of your PhD, so there's no conclusions yet. But how concerned should we be about the use of antibiotics in the livestock, in the intensive farming in Ireland at the moment? Uh, well, what we're seeing now, or what a lot of doctors are seeing in hospitals, is resistance to our antibiotics of last resort. And this is where every other antibiotic has not been successful in treating a bacterial infection. And they're having to use very old antibiotics that were taken out of use because they were very toxic to humans. Can you give an example? Uh, so colistin would be an example of this. It's uh, very toxic to the kidneys and the brains of humans. And doctors are now having to weigh up, is it better to cause kidney failure in a patient than have the patient die? And obviously using these antimicrobials in livestock is creating a reservoir of resistance that can transfer to humans and could have huge clinical implications. James, would you agree? I mean, that the, the concern about livestock farming is actually pretty important as part of the, the overall issue about resistance. Absolutely. Um, we It'd be nice to know how many antibiotic-resistant organisms are out there, and we don't. Um, and it'd be nice to know what's fueling resistance. We assume it's antibiotics it, that are released into the environment. We've got a fair idea from the human side because we can follow prescriptions but on the animal side it, it, does, it doesn't work necessarily by prescription so we, we don't necessarily know how much material. Well, of course resistance wouldn't be a problem if uh, we were discovering or making new antibiotics which seems that we're not but we have a clip here from Michel Dugan, an expert in venom from NUI Galway and he is convinced of the potential of venom as an antibiotic in the future. So venom could be a solution among others because if we take the example of spiders we know about 45,000 different species of spiders around the world. Virtually all of them are venomous and each species and sometimes each population within a species has a specific venom, a specific cocktail of chemical compounds that has evolved to actually kill prey, tackle other animals, for spiders to defend themselves. And often those products can have 
antimicrobial properties as well. And each bacterium, so each uh, little unicellular organism, has a membrane around it, like a skin. And what several venom compounds can do is that they can actually pierce holes in that skin. And once there are holes there, well, the content of the bacteria will just leak and then the bacteria will actually die. This is what we want to do. But of course, we need to make sure that we're using venom compounds that target specifically bacteria and not living cells from our body, because otherwise they will destroy our body and we don't want that. But some venom compounds can actually do that. They'll target specifically certain types of bacteria and they will not touch, they will not attack anything else. Michel Dugan uh, from NUI, go away there. Sarah, there was a recent study by the World Health Organization and it showed I think almost two thirds of people believed that antibiotics could be used to treat cold and flu. And flu, of course, is caused by a virus and antibiotics don't do anything for a virus. I mean, that's pretty shocking, isn't it? It is, but if you think about it, a lot of people, when they get a sore throat, they'll just go straight to their doctor and expect the doctor to hand them out an antibiotic. And if you've gone to the effort of going to the doctor you kind of do expect something more than being told to just go home and rest and I think a lot of investment if it was put into this area should be for rapid diagnostics where nowadays you go in if you get a swab it has to get sent to the lab you have to wait for your results to come back and I think there's already people looking into this, but if there was more investment into the area, then hopefully we could develop these uh, tests that would allow you to identify right in the doctor's office or at the patient's bedside, what is actually causing this infection? Is it a virus? Is it a bacteria? Or if it's a bacteria, what, what is it? And in that way, we'd be able to use more narrow spectrum antibiotics instead of just handing out one that's going to kill a whole range of bacteria. And hopefully that might limit resistance. Well, it's such, such a fascinating world. I mean, the world of bacteria itself and then the resistance part of it as well. Uh, there's more in antibiotic resistance and this phenomenal world of bacteria on rte.ie slash brainstorm. But for now, James Dooley from Ulster University and Sarah Delaney from Maynooth University. Thank you both so much. The programme is produced by Kieran O'Byrne and the editor is Jim Carroll. Research is by Louise Denver. Brainstorm is an RTE project in association with University College Cork, NUI Galway, University of Limerick, DCU, TU Dublin, Ulster University, Maynooth University and the Irish Research Council. This programme is available as a podcast from rte.ie slash brainstorm.